it's a process to get situated these days and get ready uh, get ready to go here. Um, well, good morning. I want to um, ask you about a couple of situations in everyday life uh, to see if you can relate to them at all. And they are very small examples um, of something that we'll be talking about. But I'm curious if anybody has ever had the experience of sending in, uh, someone to buy something for you and they came back with not at all what you were looking for when you sent them to buy something for you. Can anybody relate to that? Can anybody relate to being the shopper who headed off to the store who is pretty sure he is buying his wife exactly what she wants only to walk in the door and find out it is not at all um, what she had in mind? Any, any husbands relate to that experience? So sometimes we, um, we bring somebody something or we get something brought to us and it is not at all um, what we had in mind. So that is, uh, that is one example to keep in mind. Um, Enos, I know that you think you would never do that, but trust me, you'll buy the wrong thing at some point um, after you guys are married. Next question, have you ever called somebody, a company, and you get a message and they say, Due to an unusually high call volume, your wait time will be higher than normal. Now, is anybody else like me, and I just wonder, is it always an unusual high volume of calls, or like, what is going on? So you, you get on the phone, and you hear some music, and after a while, 30 seconds in, your call is very important to us. Please continue to hold. And I have a question, who all at that point feels like your call is very important? Am I the only one who that... Somehow that just irritates me. <laughs> Can anybody else relate to that? Where, where the words are there, but the feeling is not, you don't feel like there's anything legitimate to it. So I, I was reading in scripture over the last, I don't know, it's probably been over the last six weeks, and there were two times where uh, stories in Matthew that Jesus said, I actually, that I desire this and not sacrifice. And for some reason, that phrase stuck with me, and I'd like to look at what is he talking about, because here were people who were bringing him something, but it was not what he meant. And they were also saying the words, but they didn't feel real or didn't feel like there was meaning behind them. And so I'd like to, to look at those two stories and try to understand um, how Jesus felt, how God feels, and what it is that he desires. So... Um, God does tell us what he desires, and we want to bring him what he desires and try to understand that. So another just confession up front, the stories have to do with the Pharisees. And I worry sometimes that we kind of set the Pharisees aside and feel like we can't relate to them because the issues are so different. Um, but I want to just encourage us to set aside the issues and try to hear the heart of what was going on um, as we look at this. So if you would turn to Matthew 9 and Matthew 12. Uh, we'll start in Matthew 9, and I want to look at, at two stories and what is it that God desires and try to understand uh, what was happening and what, uh, what it is that God does desire. So we'll start in Matthew 9 in verse 9. Just a little bit of background here. Jesus uh, was, was in a certain place, and people carried to him a paralyzed man that he healed. And out of all of that, the people were amazed, and there's a big crowd of people with him. So picture that context as we uh, read through this story. 
And we'll just go through this and talk, uh, talk about the events and, and obviously focus in on, on the last part of it. As Jesus, one other little note here, um, and it is hard to stand here. Brandon, if I get away from this, you can flag me down that I need to stay home because I find myself wanting to leave the pulpit. One thing to keep in mind is that this is Matthew writing his own story. And that was just interesting to me how just matter of fact and few details he gives. And if you want more details, you actually have to read the other Gospels who will tell you more about it. But Matthew, I think, intentionally says what happens but doesn't really highlight himself. And and I'll bring that out as we go along. So starting in verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So let's just uh, jump back to the top of the story and just talk a little bit about it. So we hear about tax collectors, but in this day, they were the people who, they were viewed as traitors. They had sold out to the Roman government for the right to collect taxes. And the reason they did that is they could set, they could kind of set the level that they wanted and then keep uh, whatever was extra for themselves. So it was a very lucrative business. But once you went down this road, you were seen as a traitor. And I didn't know this until studying this, but they were excommunicated from the synagogue. So they, they had a very clearly said, you know what, I don't want this over here. Money is important to me. That's what I'm going after. And and so they were very hated. So Jesus comes along and he sees Matthew sitting at his tax booth where he was working. And one of the things that's fascinating is we don't know for sure where he was at, but he probably was either by the Sea of Galilee or by a road where commerce was coming and going. So very likely, well, he would have sat there and actually collected taxes even from the fishermen. So can you imagine that Matthew probably collected taxes at some point from Peter and the other disciples. Um, And so they would have had that background to work through after Jesus calls them. So here's Jesus. He's got a big crowd behind him, and he could choose anybody, but he's going by, and he chooses Matthew and says, follow me. And now, and it says, and he rose and followed him. Here's where we have to rely on the other gospels. He just says, he doesn't say much about it. Luke specifically says, he left everything behind and followed him. So picture the idea of he's leaving his work, he's leaving his money, he just literally drops everything and goes. And then another detail that we get in Luke, so next it jumps right to Jesus reclining at the table. Luke says that Matthew goes home and creates a great feast and has lots of basically his friends over. It's his tax collectors and the people who were outside of the synagogue over um, to introduce them to Jesus. So there they are, they're reclining, they're eating, they're, they're having a big meal, they're discussing things, and the Pharisees come in and just say, why is he eating with these people? They're excommunicated from the synagogue, there's a very good chance that one of them is ceremonially unclean, 
and is going to make Jesus unclean. Does Jesus not care about this? And somehow Jesus heard that and brings out the point that, you know what, it's sick people who need a doctor. That is why he's here. And then he says, go and learn. And keep in mind that he's talking to the very teachers of the law, the very people who would have probably tried to explain to everybody else what this phrase means. And Jesus says, you know what? You need to go and learn what this means. And so this was a very big insult in a godly kind of way to these people that thought that they could teach everybody else what it meant. So he said, go and learn. And there, there's the phrase, but they would have also known that he's talking about the book of Hosea. That's what he's quoting. And we'll look at that later. And he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I came to call the righteous, not to call the righteous, but sinners. So God desires mercy and not sacrifice. And here the Pharisees had, had kind of, um, if all of the people were, you know, figuratively speaking, standing in a room, they had drawn a line around, these people are righteous and these people aren't. And it definitely, they, they counted themselves in with the righteous and not with the sinners group. And Jesus had come to show them mercy, but they were missing the point. So God desires mercy and not sacrifice. The Pharisees were more concerned about their standing with being ceremonially clean than they were about other people. But what God desires is mercy towards others, and that is what God wanted. So at the end, I want us to, to think about what is it that God really does desire? What is it that God is looking for? And this is one story to help us understand that. All right, let's go to Matthew 12, the other place uh, that Jesus uses the same, the same phrase and try to learn what is it that God is looking for. So at this time, uh, when, they would, when they would harvest uh, the fields, they would leave the edges so that poor people could come and, and pick some things and, and feed themselves and be taken care of. And so that's, that is going to be what happens here. Let's read Matthew 12, uh, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. So they're probably going along the edges and getting the stuff that was left over there. So it wasn't that they were stealing, but the Pharisees had another issue with them. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of, the, Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Again, this is a story where we can't relate to the exact issue, but hopefully we can relate to what's going on behind the scenes. So pretty, the disciples are hungry. They, they pick and eat, but they weren't actually breaking any of God's laws, but they were breaking the laws that the Pharisees had set up to protect, to, quote, protect God's law. 
And along come the Sabbath police and say, no, 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 this is out of bounds. And uh, Jesus points out a couple of other times where, where people had, bro- had, quote, broken the law to meet a practical need. And he's saying to the Pharisees, you don't consider them wrong and that these situations weren't actually wrong. And then he goes to point out that, that something greater than the temple is here. And it's interesting, the Sabbath actually pointed to Jesus and Jesus fulfilled the law of the Sabbath. So he's saying, there's something greater, I'm here. And then he goes on to say that if, if you really had understood what I was after, you would not have condemned innocent people. And so that's a sobering thought when we don't understand what God really cares about. The tendency is to condemn innocent people. So he says, if you had really known this, and then uh, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here we have the author of the law, the fulfillment of the law, and there's people who are telling him that he's not understanding the law correctly. And he's saying that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what is it that God is after when he says he desires mercy and not sacrifice? Obviously, God does care about sacrifice. He had, he had prescribed it. He asked us. He has things he wants us to obey. But what, what is God after when he says, I want mercy and not sacrifice? In this case, there were people who were quick to judge because they felt like they were getting the law right. And other people could just do that too. And so that led them to condemn innocent people. So God is desiring mercy towards those, towards others that does not condemn the innocent. But what is it really that God is after when you hear that he wants mercy and not sacrifice? What does that mean in our situation? What do you believe that God is after rather than sacrifice? I want to just look at Hosea yet and then hopefully attempt to answer the question of what is God after? What is God looking for? And the reason I'm looking at Hosea is that Jesus was quoting this passage in both cases and they, they would have known this is what he's talking about. So in Hosea, we know the story. We have a prophet who was called to, to preach to Israel. Israel at this time had fallen into idolatry. And Hosea was asked to marry a prostitute that was not going to be faithful. And he was to faithfully love her as an example to the children of Israel. So the children of Israel, um, they, were, they had set up places to worship other than in Jerusalem. They'd fallen into Baal, Baal worship. There was just, they were oppressing people. There were a lot of things that they were doing. But they were continuing to gather to, quote, worship God. And Hosea and God is calling them back to the real heart of the matter. So let's read Hosea, which is what Jesus was quoting. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, his going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I have hewn them by prophets, I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as a light. 
For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. So this is what Jesus is pointing back to that he wants. Let's just, uh, a few comments on this before we end up in verse 6. So the, I mean, the call is to come back to God. When God disciplines or punishes us, it's always with our good in mind. And it talks about being torn and struck down. And I had to think of the idea of you know, when a bone is broken and it has to be set again. That's kind of how a picture of God's discipline. Verse 2 is interesting. We won't spend a lot of time on it. But in the New Testament, it says that Jesus rose on the third day according to scriptures. And this is probably the verse that people are pointing back, or that Paul was referencing when they say that. Verse 4 is God just lamenting that he wants, he wants the love of his people. And he's saying it, it's basically like a morning cloud and the dew that, that's gone. Um, Nicole and I and, and our family got to be, spend some time in Oregon and on the coast, often in the morning, there's fog just rolling through. But if you'd go to a viewpoint and what you wanted to see was covered in fog, you didn't have to stay very long and the fog would roll right through um, within 15 minutes or half an hour often. And I had to think about that when God is describing their love being kind of like the morning cloud, that it's here again and then it's gone. It's not, it's not consistent at all. And then in, in verse 6, he's saying... I desire steadfast love. That's what he's after. He's after love that doesn't, that doesn't come and go. And um, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God is longing for steadfast love from his people. Now one interesting thing, and we're just going to stop here a bit and, and try to understand what does God mean by steadfast love. Please hear me when I say this. I think that you can read the Bible in whatever language you know and understand it the way you're meant to and God can, can speak and, and build his church that way. But I also think it does us good sometimes to stop and look at what is the meaning in Hebrew um, because there's just a lot of things that, that bring it some texture. So where God talks about steadfast love, that word is used 250 times uh, in the Old Testament. And to kind of boggle your mind, uh, in studying this, there's a, there's a songwriter and a theologian named Michael Card who wrote an entire book on what this one word means. So he, I think he used like 48,000 words trying to actually understand what this word means. And it's not that it's so hard to understand. It's just that it's so deep and full that the more you describe it, you realize you're not actually doing it. You're not doing it justice. Um, and so I want to just talk a little bit about that. Uh, the one thing I think that we need to keep in, in, um, in our mind here is that when God talks about uh, steadfast love, it's in the, um, the context of a covenant. And, and we have to understand that, that this is about a covenant love and not the kind of love that we can just just use the word for that. So we know what a covenant is, kind of. I mean, it's, it's like a promise where somebody says, if you do this, then I will do this. And God comes and makes covenants, but God is different 
because he knows that we're not going to keep the covenant. And so he actually makes a covenant and says, but if you break the covenant, I'm going to come and do your part of the covenant for you to, to bring you back into the covenant so that we can walk in that together. And I'll do something a little bit different um, just for a bit of a change of pace and to explain that. Um, I'm going to have us watch a five-minute video clip explain, explaining the concept of covenant because I feel like that is so important for us to understand what God actually wants from us. Um, so if we can get this to work, I'll, I'll play that. Um, for those of you at home, I'll try to give you the, the link if you want to. You can hop on YouTube and watch it. Um, but let's watch this and then come back and talk to it. Sorry, I forgot to give that for any of you at home if you want to watch it later. It's called The Bible Projects and Covenants. <clears throat> so I thought that background was very important for us to understand what God means when he says he desires steadfast love and mercy from us. It's in the context of a covenant relationship with him to where he's called us into a partnership um, <clears throat> with him. So I want to talk a little bit more uh, about the word that's used there. And I'm sure I won't get it said correctly, but it, it looks like hased, but as I understand it, the hased is chased, like a, in the word bach. Um, and so one thing to keep in mind is that when the Bible gets translated, in English we're not really sure how to do it justice. And so here are the different ways that we talk about it. We'll, we'll say loyalty or devoted love or strength or kindness or faithfulness or grace. And then the four at the bottom that I highlighted, those are the most common words that are chosen in translation. So often when you read the word compassion or mercy or loving kindness, particularly in the Psalms, uh, or steadfast love, that's the word. So I hope that you're beginning to hear when God says that he wants mercy, it's a whole lot more than we would typically think of when we just use the word mercy. Because God, God is using these words to describe his covenant love. This is how he loves us. Um, when we don't deserve it, he continues to love faithfully. A few more um, attempts at defining this. I'll just read this. Hased is not merely an emotion or feeling, but involves action on behalf of someone who is in need. Describes a sense of love and loyalty that inspires merciful and compassionate behavior toward another person. So when God says he desires mercy, it's not the feeling only. It has to be the feeling and the action together. So Michael Card, after writing an entire book on this word, here, here's the definition that he uses that I actually really like because it's so simple. He says, when the person from whom I should expect nothing gives me everything. From the person, when the person from whom I should expect nothing gives me everything. And does that not describe our covenant relationship with God? We should expect nothing from God, but he in turn has actually given us everything. Um, and then that, that begins to describe it. So 
So what is it that God is after when he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice? It's not, again, that God doesn't want sacrifice and obedience. He clearly does. But this is, this is more of a picture of what God is after. And he's saying that I wanted a relationship with you and I have poured out all of these things into you. And what I'm looking for is for you to, to bring that back to me. To just allow God's love, where he loves us in this kind of way, to turn around and go back to God. But also, if we receive this kind of love, does it not deeply impact how we view other people, and particularly people who are sinners. Because, again, if you think of the covenant picture or God being faithful, we're sinners and we don't deserve this love, but God gives it to us. And as that fills our heart, then we can turn around and and give that back um, to other people. So God God is looking for that kind of covenant relationship and partnership where he remains faithful. Um, even when I fall short. So again, let's go back to the stories in Matthew. How does this kind of love look to a house full of tax collectors? I don't think it looks like the Pharisees said, no, no, you know, we might be, we might be made unclean here. Um, how does this kind of love relate to the, uh, the disciples um, on the Sabbath? So the thing that I want to, I guess, just keep in mind for myself is that when I receive this kind of love, it has to and it will change how I will treat other people. And that that's, this kind of love will flow through me. And I think the more that we can, can keep in mind and remember what we've been forgiven from and how God loves us, then that will change what we give back to God and back to other people. So just a... Uh, a couple of, I guess, clarifications or things to, um, to also keep in mind is that if I find myself doing things that maybe leave me feeling superior to somebody else, that's probably a warning sign that I'm not operating out of this kind of love that, um, from God to me and back to other people when I start feeling superior. When I start looking at sinners down my nose, it's probably a warning sign that I'm not living in this kind of love. When the focus can become on, on our sacrifice or our worship or really anything that we're doing, then we're not living with this at the core. So one, one thing I had, uh, had to think of, um, I've got this little um, expandable binder thing. I have one that's full and then I started on this one where when your children or people give you cards or things that, that mean a lot to you, where do you go with them? So I, you know, I put them in here and... I could probably give this to anybody here, maybe Nicole, it's not true, I mean, outside of my family, I could give this to anyone, and it would have such little value. I mean, really, it's, it's some papers that are kind of tattered, and this thing isn't worth much, but I know that what's written in here from my family, their heart and who they are, and they mean the words that are in here. And so it is very valuable to me, this, the contents that, that's here. And so I think that it's, it's just something that we need to keep in mind when we come to God. Our, quote, sacrifice in itself, there's not value in it, except when our whole heart is in it, it actually is very, very valuable to God. And it, it, it is how we love God when we bring Him, we bring Him our whole heart. And if, if one of my children would start focusing entirely on their gifts and not leave me feeling very loved, if they would just 
you know, Dad, I, I got you the most awesome birthday card. I, you know, and if they would start focusing on their gifts, suddenly the gifts and the relationship would not, would kind of lose its value. But when I know the heart is there, the gifts have, have value and have meaning. So as we relate to God, let's just keep in mind it's, it's our heart that he's after. That's really what he wants. Um, and make sure that our focus is on that. And I also want to clarify, please hear me, that I'm not at all diminishing obedience in this. God does say that we express love through obedience. And I'm just saying if we receive this kind of love from God and truly live in it, then we will walk in obedience. I don't think there's any way that we can receive that and then continue to walk knowingly in disobedience over a long period of time. Um, That kind of love will change us. And I, I also don't want you to hear me saying that if you break open your Bible for devotions tomorrow morning and you're not feeling like doing it, that somehow it's not valuable to God. Don't hear me saying that. Um, God knows what our heart is. It's not, it's not about the emotions that we're feeling while we're bringing something to God, but it's about bringing all of who we are um, to God in, in worship. So God longs for me to experience this heart from him and to reflect that heart back and then also um, to give it to other people. Um, I had to think of uh, really this morning is just a reminder of what God says about the commandments, that they are summed up in loving God with all of your heart and loving your neighbor as yourself. And so when God says he's looking for mercy and not sacrifice, I think that this is what he's saying in Mark 12 um, is what he's after. So again, just a reminder that when the person from whom I should expect nothing gives me everything, that's the kind of love that God is talking about um, in in these verses. All right, thank you for your attention. Um, This is the kind of thing that, how do you measure your love for God? I don't know that I certainly can't. Um, You maybe can, but God can for for sure. Um, So I just want to encourage us to to love God with all of our heart and then to reflect that to other people um, this week. So let's stand, and I'd like to just ask God uh, to do that work in us. Heavenly Father, uh, today I just want to rejoice in your great love for us, Lord, that you've called us into a covenant relationship. You love us uh, with a love that, that doesn't stop even when we fall short. And God, thank you, thank you for that. Um, Lord, I pray that each of us here could accept that love, could live in that love. And uh, God, just to reflect your character. And then as we do that, Lord, please help us to, to love you back in that way. You're asking for faithful love that doesn't change and doesn't waver. And then, God, you're asking that, that somehow that that just changes um, how we love other people. Um, so, Lord, we, we fall short often, but, God, we, we're just asking that you would fill our heart with love for you. God, you know where each person is here um, as far as loving you. And uh, so, God, I just pray this morning, if there are things that are diminishing our love for you, Would you convict us? May we set that aside. May we repent. Um, And God, may we love you fully. And and may our life be pleasing to you. May we bring you the things that you desire, um, which is just our whole heart in an honest kind of way. So we seek you for that. 
Uh, God, just walk with each of us this week in the different things that we face. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.